Hey listeners, welcome to the 36th episode of The Goods Film Podcast. How you doing today, Brian? Doing well. Our show is cruising on down the road. Brian, what would you say if I told you to go kiss a duck, Marblehead? Would you be offended? Well, maybe if I was bald, as (laughs) the recipient of that insult is. That is maybe my favorite line from... Today's movie, American Graffiti, from 1973. This movie was directed by George Lucas. He's also one of the co-writers. And it's got a a deep ensemble cast, a couple of whom would go on to future fame. Richard Dreyfuss and Ron Howard play two of the four main protagonists of the film. They're, They're Kurt and Steve, respectively. I will say it bugs me when movies have multiple protagonists with really generic first names. I always get them mixed up in my head. For this one, it was I was constantly getting Kurt and Steve mixed up, and then there's Debbie, Lori, and Carol, which are all like names that ants have, in my opinion. And I was constantly getting these names mixed up in my head. So, but anyways, Kurt and Steve are uh, Richard Dreyfus and Ron Howard. The other two protagonists are Paul Lamott, I think is how you say it. He plays Milner, sort of proto-Fonzie. And Charles Martin Smith plays Terry the Toad, who is the McLovin of the group. So those are our four protagonists. As I mentioned at the end of last week, I picked this movie because I really love start of summer movies. You know, end of the school year, sometimes graduating high school, looking out into the, the yonder, but also looking back into what you had. And I did not realize that this is, in fact, an end-of-summer movie. Although I will say that only a few things really attach it to the end-of-summer feel. It really could have been, for most of it, any part of the summer. Right. Given the way you described it, I went like two-thirds of the movie before realizing it was actually August and not the final week of the semester. Right, because there's a school dance, you know. It's a sock hop, but... I never had school dances on, like, the first day of the school year. I guess really the one giveaway is that they're talking about leaving for college the next day. But, like, you could do that, especially because he's going across the country. It's like, I would think you wouldn't just do that the day of. You would leave a little bit of time. Right. But uh, sure enough, this takes place on the last night of summer, a.k.a. Jansen night. (laughs) A truly terrifying night. Prime possibilities for a time loop here although we do not get one that would be a very different american graffiti yeah so i I tend to really love movies as listeners will no doubt know from 36 episodes several of which have been movies about coming of age teenagers getting up to mischief and in some cases not all that much actually happening i just really love these movies uh, that capture a very specific vibe and allow us to kind of hang out with the characters as they kind of reckon with the end of their childhood and the oncoming adulthood is just very rich and enjoyable and makes me personally nostalgic, in part because my senior year of high school was probably my favorite year of my life, just in terms of happiness, discovering new things, being excited about the future without all that much responsibility on my back. We've talked about ranking years in the past, Brian. Where does the senior year of high school rank for you? 
it's high. I definitely loved high school too. I had an audience in high school that I have struggled to recapture since. But uh, I guess, in a sense, that's uh, one of the goals of our project here. Sure. Is find that audience. So this movie takes place in 1962. This is, I think, this timing is very important. It actually feels more like what you think of the 50s feeling like. This kind of 1962, very early 60s era is really the last vestige of kind of like the Eisenhower Leave it to Beaver years before things really started shaking up and turning into what we think of as the 60s. Because within two years of when this takes place, we'd have escalation in Vietnam, JFK's assassination, the civil rights movement, start of the women's liberation movement and feminism. And of course, in the music scene, music is a very important part of this movie, as it is many Just Hanging Out movies. Music would completely change, too. Bob Dylan and the Beatles and all of their peers would completely reshape rock and roll and its kind of place in the culture. And I would say many of the things I just described are very notable aspects in the sequel to American Graffiti, which I watched this past week, but you did not manage to watch. Correct, Brian? That's right. I just read the summary. That movie is, is titled More American Graffiti, which is just a terrible title on many fronts. First of all, it's really tacky to just put more in front of your sequel title. It's like, at least do the two thing. I don't know. Yeah, is it better than a two? I'm not sure. I, I think it's worse than a two. But it's also especially deceptive because when you hear a more American graffiti, like what goes through your head is it's the same thing, just more of it. When going from 1962 to 1964 through 1967, where the sequel takes place, is a very, very different experience. And that movie is very different. I'm hoping we'll have a little bit of time at the end of this to talk a little bit more about that sequel, because I have a lot of thoughts on that sequel. Yeah, but this really is 1962. It's... Uh interesting moment in time it's like on a precipice as you said things are right about to change but we see like a generation of young people who seem ready to just carry on the 50s style like if the ground shaking events of the 60s hadn't taken place like how long would that ethos have persisted interesting like a counter reality where JFK isn't assassinated or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There's definitely a strong nostalgia for that time, and I agree that the characters are not very interested in reckoning with their worldview changing other than them just growing up. But there is an undercurrent to kind of an end of innocence, end of youth, that in the style of the TV show The Wonder Years parallels the incoming cultural change with the incoming personal change to kind of crests in this apotheosis at the end of this film that's a good point i think it's also interesting to note that american graffiti was made in 1973 and it's about 1962 that would be like a movie coming out this year that took place in 2010 it's so bizarre because if you think about 11 years later 1973 was just, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't alive, obviously, but everything I know about how the 70s are depicted, I'm thinking like dazed and confused. Just such a completely different America than the one there. It was, it was a robust 11 years for change, I would say. Also interesting that you bring up dazed and confused. Well, for several reasons. 
but specifically because you say it colors your impression and the way you picture the 70s. But that movie came out in, what, 1993? Yeah, something like that. And similarly, this movie and Happy Days, a TV show which is linked in some ways, also stars Ron Howard and has a nostalgic look back on the 50s. When I picture the 50s, I picture Happy Days, but that show is from the 70s. Interesting. It's almost like the people who were growing up there during that time need to be the ones to capture it, but they're not really ready to until they're like, you know, a decade or two later looking back. I don't know. Right. I think that's insightful. A major focus of this movie is cruising. A, I think, long dead phenomenon of basically just driving around town. That was how you hung out at night. You just drove around town circling the same few streets, seeing the same few faces over and over again, chatting through them through the car windows, shouting to people on the the sidewalk. And I think it's worth noting that in the spirit of what I just said of people kind of chronicling the time that they grew up, George Lucas was a senior in high school in 1962 when this happened. He was very into cars and very into cruising. And I think there is quite a bit of autobiography in this film for Lucas. In fact, Lucas was so into cars that he wanted to be a professional driver, but he actually got into a bad car accident uh, right around the time when this movie takes place. So here's from Wikipedia. On June 12th, 1962, a few days before his high school graduation, Lucas was driving his souped up Otto Bianchi Bianchina when another driver broadsided him flipping his car several times before it crashed into a tree. Lucas's seatbelt had snapped, ejecting him and thereby saving his life. That's not exactly what happens in the climax of this film, but there are strong echoes of that. And it's very poignant to me to think about how he thinks of his life kind of completely altering with this crash. And we see that the characters will also have their lives impacted by a crash at the end of this movie. Definitely. I'm going to be talking a lot today about when I was in sixth grade. I don't know what the serendipity of that is, but that year, one of the first research projects I ever did for school was I did a report on George Lucas. And so I read biographies of him and learned about a lot of projects he was involved with that I didn't really know about before, uh, including this film, but also that he was like an executive producer on things like Howard the Duck and Willow and Labyrinth and Land Before Time. Just things that I would not suspect at first that he had a hand in. But I think American Graffiti is, is kind of an outlier. When I think George Lucas, I'm thinking about space wizards and like the wrath of God evaporating Nazis. In, in its way, this is much more down-to-earth. Yeah, he, he's all about, like, the genre operatics, the pulpy, exciting stuff. For me, that's actually a disappointment because I think he does a pretty good job overall of making this movie. Like, I mean, we'll talk about our rating, but in some ways, this movie is, in its own way, as well-crafted as Star Wars, for example. And... I don't know. I like these kinds of movies, these kind of 
more intimate, low-key, contemporary movies. And I wish there was an alternate universe that I could briefly visit where Star Wars flopped and he went back to making movies like this. At the same time, though, I mean, you've got Harrison Ford driving around in a cool car, so I, I think the seed was was there and carried on. That's true. That's a good point. There are elements that carry over to his future work. And it's worth noting this movie was a massive hit, obviously not a Star Wars level hit, but it ended up ultimately netting over $100 million at the box office on a budget of $775,000. And Lucas made enough money off of this to basically fund his efforts to make Star Wars, which we all know is pioneering in many different ways. And so in some ways, this was almost the catalyst for kicking off the blockbuster revolution of movies. But I am ready to dive into talking about this movie. Uh, what about you, Brian? Let's do it. Start your engines. <laughs> so since this movie, it really is more about just the period details and like little vignettes and anecdotes and the language and the look and sound of what's going on. It's less about an actual plot. And so, I, I don't know, I kind of feel like maybe we should start by talking about what it is in the presentation that this movie really devotes its time depicting. How do you feel about movies like this, Brian? So I was wondering if you knew this was the premise going in, Dan. Kind of. I, did, I knew that it was a one-day high school-ish movie that was about the 50s. Well, I thought it was about the 50s. It's not even about the 50s. And I thought it was the start of summer, but it's not the start of summer. So I, I kind of knew the gist of what it was, though. Okay. What about you? Uh, I also thought it was the 50s, but it's it's like the very, very tail end of... of it's, it's, not, it's not the 60s yet, despite it being 1962. I didn't really know what date it took place at or that it was in one night, but that's a good point. This movie could far better wear the title of It Happened One Night or A Night to Remember than either of those films. <laughs> That's a good point. I completely agree. I don't even know what American graffiti means. Graffiti does not play a role in the plot. I don't know. Yeah, like maybe he was thinking like American Gothic, but like updated. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I don't really know. Uh, there has been confusion on that point, but... I don't know, I guess it has a ring to it. It's a catchy title. I will say, though, as I gradually became aware what the movie was going to be, <laughs> uh, that time was not passing, and that it was the whole thing was going to be these people driving around in cars, and just in one night, in like kind of close to real time, I was getting worried. <laughs> uh, the derogatory term i might use and probably have used in the past is movies where things don't happen movies where nothing happens i i think i lobbed that criticism at our discussion uh early on uh, like our third episode uh when we covered richard linklater's film everybody wants some which took place over the course of i think it was a weekend and it was also a coming of age period movie uh, in that case it took place in the 80s and it was on focused on this group of college friends and they go to a lot of parties and it spends a lot of time recreating 
different scenes, different hangouts, like a disco and a cowboy bar. And they just kind of go from place to place and party. And I was waiting the whole time for something to happen. Or like, there was foreshadowing, like a, a waterbed cracks the floor, but doesn't fall through the floor. And I thought, oh, there's a Chekhov's gun. There was never a disaster, you know, no no sinking ship, no giant monster. And I was pulled out of that one. Uh, it was not my cup of tea. So all that to say here at the start, I was anticipating we might be going down that same road. <laughs> but we'll see what happens when we get to our ratings here today. Right. A couple of things. Well, it's worth noting that I gave everybody wants some a exceptionally good a seven out of eight on our is a good rating scale and i believe you gave it a three out of eight a not not good so i think that's still to date our biggest gap of of rating scores so i was definitely curious how you'd react to this one yes i thought it would give us some good fodder for discussion (laughs) i think at some point we should like pitch the quintessential dan movie and the quintessential brian movie and like each each pitch the one for the other oh interesting or else, like, maybe next April Fool's, we, like, present from the viewpoint of the other one or something. <laughs> that that could be fun, yeah. But a couple of the things that are kind of key to all this, driving around, hanging out, just a lot of lovely details. And lovely is somewhat in air quotes because some of these are kind of cheesy. But I really love the drive-in restaurant that we repeatedly visit throughout the night. It's got these... N- neon lights are absolutely gorgeous and and bright and it made me think of the founder the second movie we ever watched where you see these drive-through restaurants going out of style and i don't know i wanted to like go order a 10 cent cherry coke there was another movie where we also had a sizable difference of opinion so who who knows maybe it's just seeing the 50s fast food restaurants that is ultimately going to give this one a bit of a boost for me because it's all about the cruising, there's just a lot of attention to detail in the cars. Like a wide variety of cars, some of them souped up. A lot of the action revolves around cars. The car radio is just an omnipresent thing. And I don't know. You have like the greasers and the cool guys also wearing the tight undershirts and the the matching jackets that I just think of as the 50s look, the grease, happy days look. It's funny, like, I don't know, you think of how Ron Howard is dressed here. He's got, like, the clean part, the fresh button-up shirt and the slacks, and he looks like what would be a geek in other movies, but here he's depicted as, like, a pretty popular, well-liked guy, you know? Yeah, similar to in Happy Days, he's, like, the default. He, he's, like, the RPG main character. You know, the the friends who gravitate around him are the ones who have the more archetypical traits he's just kind of a blank slate he's like a stand-in normal guy right so the story to the extent that there is a story really breaks into four threads basically right away each one centered around one of the main male protagonists at the very start of the movie they all briefly meet at a drive-in and then they part their ways for the rest of the night most of them reuniting i guess they all reunite at the very end of the film the first protagonist kurt richard dreyfus is supposed to be going to college with Steve, the Ron Howard character, the next morning. But Kurt is having kind of second thoughts. He's not sure if he actually wants to go to college. And he spends the night having what I would call a 
long dark night of the soul where he kind of searches within himself. He he's, seems to be looking for some reason for him to kind of stay behind and not go to college, but instead go to what they repeatedly call JC. So that's junior college. That's not, I guess community college is the same concept, but I never hear it called junior college anymore. Yeah, I was wondering, it took me a while to put that together. I, I thought of J.C. Penny. It's like, the, <laughs> the era's not quite right for that. That would be more of an 80s film. Right. And Kurt seems to find the thing that will be the thing to keep him from going to college. And that is when he's driving around early in the evening, this woman in a white T-bird mouths, or seems to mouth, I love you, through the window at him. And she's this illusory, briefly glimpsed woman from another car. And so he decides he's going to track down this woman as he's kind of grappling with whether or not he wants to uh, actually go to college the next day and spends the rest of the night kind of searching for this woman but getting caught up in various mischief and hijinks that a lot of the figures he encounter kind of represent what he might become if he sticks around town instead of going to college. So that's kind of the, the seed of Kurt's story. Meanwhile, Steve, who is Ron Howard, he is also planning to go to college, and hes you can tell he's pretty stoked about it, but he's got a steady girlfriend, Lori, who's kind of a popular girl. She is said to be a rising senior, so she's a year younger than him. Basically, right away, he sets up that he wants to say something dramatic to Lori, and she's kind of expectant, like, I don't like that he's going to say something grandly romantic. But he basically says that he wants to have an open relationship so that he can date other people while he's at college, but still ultimately stay together. And he spends the rest of his evening basically navigating the emotional fallout of that decision. The third sort of thread is Terry the Toad, who is basically the McLovin character here. Yeah, this character made me really realize how much this movie felt like an early super bad. <laughs> yeah. So he's not going to college. I think he's going to JC as they call it. And he is like the loser here. So he's the one that even the other somewhat geeky characters kind of look down on. And he drives a Vespa. We see him in the opening scenes complaining about how no girls want to be with him. When he first shows up at the diner at the start of the movie, He's on this little scooter, and he, like, doesn't stop quickly enough and crashes into the wall. And apparently this was a blooper. Like, <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> scripted. He just hit the thing. That's pretty funny. And they left it in. Because I thought that seemed unrealistic. It was, like, kind of an 80s college comedy pratfall type bit. But I guess it was real life. Again, he has the, the McLovin plot where... So he gets Steve's car... That's the Ron Howard character, who, of course, has a cool car. He, Steve gives him the car to look after, which is a bizarre thing. I've never heard of, like, giving your friend a car while you're at college. I I would think that it would go to your parents, but I don't know. I, I guess good for him. I guess cars were very different at this time. This is, like, a, a point where now Terry can go cruising, and he this is, like, his moment. He's going to be a cool guy. And even though he's the geek, he kind of ends up stumbling into the most epic adventurous night of the evening he picks up the sexy dangerous debbie and then has one misadventure after another throughout the evening man i i got a lot out of this storyline i was having a good time 
<laughs> I love the way he he rolls up on this girl and his pickup lines just magically work and he's clearly not expecting them to. <laughs> yeah, that's a good moment. <laughs> she says something about how she loves the upholstery of his car. Like she's standing outside the car. Oh, I love that upholstery you've got. He says you want to feel it <laughs> just like as awkwardly as possible. And she's like, Oh yeah, I do. Let me in. He's got this really thick set of glasses that just kind of distort his eyes and a terribly greasy haircut and this really ugly shirt jacket thing. I don't know exactly what it is, but even though it's like styles that would not convey today, you just know immediately that he's the loser guy. I agree. Lots of fun stuff with him. And uh, everybody calls him Terry the Toad, but when he meets this girl, he says, I'm Terry the Tiger. <laughs> the The last plot thread here is Milner. He's the bad boy. He's the, the Fonz. He's the gearhead with the really cool car. And he's got this kind of James Dean angst and is real touchy and Definitely doesn't want to give up his cruising lifestyle so that he can go to college. He he's staying at JC. An early scene with him, he's he's cruising and he's trying to pick up some women from another car, but ends up inadvertently picking up Carol, who is a younger, precocious girl. Wikipedia says that that Carol is supposed to be twelve. I don't think I heard that in the dialogue. To me, she seemed more like. 14 or 15, like maybe someone who was about to go to high school or maybe was like a year short of high school, but definitely a kind of precocious child vibe about her. He obviously hates it at first because he's trying to be this tough guy, but ends up finding her to be pretty charming company as the night goes along. So I think you kind of already gave your answer, Brian, but I was going to ask which of these four threads were your favorite and if you had like a ranking for them. So I was definitely laughing the hardest at Terry's storyline, but I, I thought they all had something to offer, and they're all kind of showing vignettes from this era. You know, we get a focus on the Greaser gang in Kurt's story, and I think Milner's story is kind of the crux. There's a pretty good balance of how much time we spend with each character, and, like, everybody gets their compelling moments... But Milner is the, the car guy, so I felt like it was important. Like, maybe Lucas put the most of himself into the Milner character, or, or what he wanted to be and what he valued. That That's the guy driving around in the cool yellow car the whole time. Exactly, yeah. For me, the ranking, I, I completely agree with what you said about how balanced they are. I was actually kind of blown away with how it managed to do slightly different things with all of them, but really make them all have moments to shine and have pretty decently evenly split screen times and arcs that the characters go through. I actually watched the movie twice the second time so I could make notes, and I was really looking out for like any sense of imbalance between them, but they really are all uh, given a lot of love and uh, prominent place in the film, I thought, even as I watched through again and was kind of trying to find holes to poke in it. Uh, the one that resonated personally with me was Ron Howard's story because when I went off to college, I had a girlfriend who was still in high school and it was very tense and back and forth and emotional as I went off to college. 
I mean, I just mentioned that my senior year of high school might have been my favorite year of my life. Part of that was because, you know, I was dating this girl. It was the first girl I was ever in a relationship with. And that was just so fun getting to spend senior year with her. And then I would say maybe my least favorite year of my life, or certainly way up there, is my freshman year of college. And part of that is because it was really soured by a lot of relationship drama. Now, the good news is I had a happy ending to my story. I am now married to that woman um, and have two kids with her. So um, it can happen. Uh, We do see sparks of it here, but I found a lot of personal resonance in that story. Yeah, I was wondering if you might relate to that story. Something I don't think we've said yet is there's a couple things tying the different threads together. One thing is young Harrison Ford is driving around in a car and he's wearing a cowboy hat because apparently he didn't want to cut his long hair. Oh, that's interesting. But he's his character is looking for the Milner character because he wants to have a drag race. Yeah, and that ends up being essentially the climax of the film. But I definitely loved seeing Harrison Ford talking with a little bit of a twang, wearing a cowboy hat, popping his head out of a window. That was That was a fun cameo. I mean, I guess it's more than a cameo. It's kind of like a side character. Ford would actually return in the sequel, but for a one-scene cameo where he plays a police officer. And of course, he would also return in several other Lucas projects. Well, another thing that's happening that ties together disparate threads is, you know, everybody is spending at least some of their time driving around in cars, and there is a constant presence of the disc jockey Wolfman Jack on the radio. So we haven't talked about the soundtrack. I guarantee that we will. But you have him as kind of a narrator and like a master of ceremonies of the evening. But the characters also talk about him and how he's like mysterious because you just get a voice as on a podcast. You don't see our faces. So people are talking about, oh, here... Here's what I think he looks like. And, oh, where is he broadcasting from? Yeah. On the note of the soundtrack, this is masterpiece level soundtrack in multiple ways. I mean, one is just, I looked it up. There are 41 different rock songs and they are astonishingly varied and like almost all just all time banger classics from the late 50s and early 60s. Beyond that, the way that this movie uses sound, Brian's exactly right. It's just the music is constantly floating there. It's like everyone has their radios on, but it's not just always like in the viewer's ear. There's almost this impressionistic way that it's depicted. Like sometimes it's kind of fuzzy if they're far away from the car. It's it's like a character in and of itself. At one point, a car gets stolen, and the only way they know the car gets stolen is because the ever-present music goes away briefly. And it's almost like a a fourth wall-breaking thing, because the character looks up and is like, wait, where'd the music go? Our car must be gone. And I would say, I mean, this has one of my favorite soundtracks ever. I can say, even just having seen it this week for the first time. I think you could have worse introductions to like seminal early rock and roll than just spinning the 41 tracks from American Graffiti is actually what the soundtrack is titled. The only notable omission that I felt and then later confirmed was due to a licensing issue is there's no Elvis. There's no RCA here. 
which is um, a little bit of a bummer. But otherwise, it really feels like a pretty comprehensive cross-section just with this radio DJ always hanging out. I, I loved the soundtrack in this movie. Yeah, the music is an experience that all the characters share, even though they are in different locations. Right. And they, they often talk about the music and stuff. They all have their kind of different perspectives and thoughts on it. And it's it's just fun seeing that. I don't know. I kind of miss or have a phantom nostalgia for the ubiquity of music like that. Like it was a little bit of that when you and I were younger and it was like the big pop boom of the late nineties where you had Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and they were just inescapable. But I feel like nowadays with Spotify and Pandora, you just don't get that the way that you used to. Like there's something lost in the monoculture shattering. Yeah. And radio just used to be more important and like, music being broadcast at a you know at a time now with spotify and everything it's so atomized and you know you can consume whatever you want whenever you want wherever you are and that makes a difference so i thought we could take a look at just a couple of the specific things that happen some of these vignettes and anecdotes across kind of the four characters stories Um, so kurt he's the one he's richard dreyfus the one who is having second thoughts about going to college. And as I mentioned, he encounters various people who are potential portraits of what he could become if he stayed home. One is Mr. Wolf, who's this kind of somewhat pathetic young teacher who's like constantly hitting on and flirting with the girl students, but seems to be kind of buddies with the kids. He also gets tangled up with the Pharaohs, who are a greaser gang, and ends up like hanging out with them for much of the evening and getting into some of their trouble to the point that they offer him a a jacket. They offer him the chance to join the pharaohs. As kind of all this is going on, he's still seeking out this woman in the white T-bird. So in the dark night, we get Joker's origin story, but we get it like two or three different ways that just do not jive together. And so you're left with not actually knowing who the Joker is. And we have a similar effect here with this woman in the white T-bird. We hear multiple origin stories for her. The two that we hear are that she's the wife of a rich jeweler, or perhaps that she's actually a prostitute. And there's a couple times where the conversation verges to her, and it feels like we might get another origin story. And she just seems like this mythological figure who is ethereal and can never be pinned down. Kind of like the same thing they're doing with the Wolfman. Yeah, a a couple of his more kind of epic misadventures from the evening. This is for Kurt. He robs a pinball arcade with the Pharaohs. He like is able to get away with it by sweet talking the, the store owner who knows him as kind of a nice kid. The guy keeps talking about how Kurt should join the Moose Lodge someday. Does the Moose Lodge still exist, Brian? I think it does. There are certainly still Elks Lodges because that's where we had the 2017 Halloween Spooktacular. Gotcha. But yeah, this is like a society, sort of a fraternal order of middle-aged dudes, and they gave him money to help him go to college. So it's kind of like he's robbing him twice. (laughs) Yeah. 
Uh, although the movie refrains from being too critical of Kurt, I would say. Yeah, he's kind of caught up in things bigger than himself. He's not the driving force of the things that happened to him this evening. Yeah, and I think that's like awakening for him. The big set piece that he's involved with is the pharaohs talk him into tying police car's rear axle to like this pillar and then to lure the cop the pharaohs kind of peel out and the cop turns on their light and pulls out quickly to chase after him but because the rear axle is tied up the entire rear half of the car comes off and the cop car is left just kind of dangling there i didn't know that you could do this this is this was pretty surprising for me yeah it's one of the two big stunts in this film like one of the two big action pyrotechnics effects and it was jarring after you know being very down to earth and cinema verite the whole time but the last thing that happens to kurt uh, before kind of the climax is he's still desperately searching for this woman and he i guess the radio station is right in town he he walks i think to the radio station and finds the DJ there, and it's kind of left ambiguous, although we're given a hint at the end, whether this guy is just a a dude just hit and play on some tapes, or if he is in fact Wolfman Jack. We get like a shot right at the end of him recording in the Wolfman's voice, and I think Wolfman Jack, I don't know much about him, but I think he was a real person. Like I think that's how he's listed in the cast. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the guy. Okay. That's him. Gotcha. That's what I thought. So, but yeah, he actually goes and meets the mysterious Wolfman Jack, and he's just a a chubby dude hitting play on a soundboard, slurping on popsicles for some reason. Also, Richard Dreyfuss looks remarkably young in this movie. It took me a while to even realize it was him, because he looks totally different in Jaws, which is just two years after this movie. But I guess he's got a beard in that movie. So that makes a difference. So I actually haven't seen Jaws, but I'm familiar enough with it that I know who the protagonist is. And I agree, I could not piece together that this was the same person at first. Like, I don't think I would have ever recognized him as the same person if I hadn't looked up the casting. Meanwhile, Steve, the the Ron Howard character... So his kind of early thing is he goes to the sock hop with Lori. So Lori's going back to school and they're having their start of school sock hop and Steve goes with her and we get one of the quintessential 50s, 60s pranks. There's a cherry bomb that goes off in the bathroom and like causes a sink to explode and flooding in the bathroom. And then we actually get in in the sock hop itself and I really loved the filming of the sock hop. They have a live band. They have a huge cast of extras, these students dancing. There's like a couple minutes just devoted to hearing the rocking out and the different kids dancing in the different ways. And I would have spent like several more minutes just listening to classic rock songs and watching these people dance along. It reminded me of many of the musical moments we've discussed throughout the this podcast history, but in particular, some of the the really great stuff in Everybody Wants Some, where they just show the characters hanging out, listening to music, and dancing at a party scene, you know? I do like in movies when they can work in a 50s school dance. Back to the Future is the obvious go-to example for me. 
even like West Side Story, which was like of the times. At least the the show came out in the fifties. I think the movie was a little later. Later in the dance, he and Laurie are picked as the king and queen of the dance, and they have like this big spotlight that goes down on them, and like the, it's kind of a lot of pressure. It's like the homecoming king and queen, but the whole auditorium or wherever they are makes a big circle to watch these two people slow dance as a romantic tune is on. And it's especially awkward because we know that they just sort of broke up. Yeah, that their relationship is very much in limbo. But I thought this moment was extremely evocative. I really liked the way that this was shot because it's like romantic music, them kind of holding each other and like putting on a pretty face. But they're like arguing and relitigating like their romantic history and and stuff and it turns from bickering into like sparks into reignited affection over the course of a couple minutes there's a moment where like things there's a pause and they're arguing and laurie starts crying and ron howard like the protective boyfriend says oh what's wrong and she replies go to hell and I just thought that that was the cherry on top of that that little moment. So I, I liked that exchange. As a brief tangent, in 2014, I wrote a draft of a novel that I titled The Nights Busted Open. And it is nine different interlocking stories all taking place on one night, the night of a homecoming dance at a high school. And the characters kind of cross into each other's story and I mapped the whole thing out. I wrote a draft of it and was pretty fond of it. And one thing I did is I put a twist ending on each of the stories of some sort. But one of these stories was like basically this, which again kind of was drawn from personal experience a little bit about this couple that still clearly have feelings for each other, but are kind of at a crossroads in their relationship and are kind of fighting about it. And so I was like, this is like the exact scene that I wrote in, in my thing, you know, almost 10 years ago now brought me back wow yeah again i'm consistently impressed by your literary output i've got to read some of that someday if you're willing to share (laughs) i would like to revisit it and revise it i'm not sure it's in a readable state but there are germs of ideas in a few of the novel drafts that i've written that i still really like and 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 probably getting too old to write because most of them are in the young adult genre where you can maybe write it when you're 25 but maybe not when you're 35 but Yeah, maybe someday I will polish some of those up and send them your way. So one scene that appears in at least two of, maybe three of the stories is the the canal. So the canal seems to be where you go when you want to canoodle in the backseat of your car. So they go to the, the canal and get into yet another argument. And Ron Howard, Steve, gets thrown out of the car. That's their last separation before we get to the climax of this film. But the, again, the emotional arc here and kind of all of the misadventures for Steve relate around him trying to console Laurie and their kind of ebb and flow in this evening. But I think the character who gets the most fun little vignettes and anecdotes is Terry, Terry the Toad. He just has a lot of crazy stuff happen to him in his first night of his cruising. This is the character that, that Brian and I said was maybe the most fun to watch here he he gets accosted by a used car salesman pretty early on i just he was like this the vintage stereotype of a smooth fast talking used car salesman 
he gets roped into stealing some liquor for Debbie, the girl he picked up, and it just goes worse and worse until finally the store gets stuck up and he manages to grab a a liquor bottle. I think that the armed robber grabs a bottle and tosses it to him or something. But this one in particular struck me as something that very much echoed in Superbad. You talked about how this was a lot of Superbad stuff. There is the exact same like issue of trying to get alcohol from a store, and it ends up basically working out for the McLovin-type character when a stick-up occurs. I don't know if you recall that, Brian. I've only ever seen Superbad once, but there are certainly parallels here. As I was watching, I was just thinking, the people who made Superbad like, saw this movie and just wanted to be more profane with it. Because the premise is very, very similar. And a lot of the beats. Well, Superbad was actually written by Seth Rogen and his friend Evan Goldberg while they were in high school. So I'm wondering if they had seen this when they, they wrote that. This, this plot point is similar enough that I kind of think they had to have seen this movie at that point. And there's another McLovin parallel in, in Superbad... McLovin kind of just plays it cool and manages to get with the kind of very sexy, dangerous woman at the party. And the same thing happens here. Like he brings to your point how he just keeps kind of bumbling into romantic success. He brings Debbie to the canal and is able to make the moves on her there. Although, of course, that's when his car gets stolen. But the funny thing is he this is like right when he recrosses path with Steve, who's Ron Howard. And if you will remember the car that just got stolen is in fact owned by Ron Howard. So now Terry is trying to divert suspicion about where the car might be as he's talking with Steve. Yeah, I was a little confused as to how Steve would overlook that his car was gone, but I guess he's got other things (laughs) on his mind at this point. Right. He finally gets the car back, uh, Terry does, when he's retching, puking from the drinking too much of the liquor. He recovered pretty well. He recovered like a champ, I gotta say. But as he's kind of retching, he notices out of the corner of his eye that the car that had been stolen, and he tries to hotwire it to steal it back. But these big tough guys, presumably the people who stole it in the first place, come and wallop him before Milner comes in and saves the day. And kind of leading up to the climax of this movie, after all these things have gone terribly for Terry, but also it's been like more of an adventure for him than he'd ever had before. He basically fesses up to Debbie, everything that he had been acting like. And a lot of the stories he had told her were basically all made up, but she doesn't seem to mind. She's like, Oh, I had a great night. And maybe if you go out again, give me a call. So maybe a little bit of like male gaze, wishful fantasy here, but it was still a fun ride. I would say for, for Terry's character. Yeah, even some of the lies he tells are pretty funny that you never see because they're just confabulations that he's spinning on the go. But he talks about how he hunts bears. <laughs> and the girl is like, oh, why would you kill an animal? And he says, well, I figure with bears, it's them or me. <laughs> That's good. And, and like, she'll call back as, you know, when they run into difficulty, she'll, like, call back to all of these things he claims to have or be able to do. And he'll just be like, what? <laughs> because he's <laughs> telling so many lies, he doesn't even remember <laughs> what he said. The last of these four threads is follows Milner, who is the Fonzie-type character, the cool guy, the bad boy. And 
remember he's kind of caught with Carol, who is the the precocious younger girl, and he spends like a lot of time just trading barbs with her, where she's kind of making fun of him, and he's complaining that she's young and a little kid and doesn't know how to do anything. And they have some good barbs back and forth, but he takes it too far at one point, telling somebody else that he's babysitting, and she just bails out of the car. And this is kind of the first moment where they have to acknowledge, acknowledge that they don't hate each other's company. And we get a moment where he, he brings her to this car junkyard that I think he said his dad owns. And this was shot really hauntingly, like a graveyard, sort of. I don't know. Also, he knows the stories of all the cars. So this was a good moment of world building. That I mean, we, we only see these characters and the setting for one night, but you really get the sense here that the world does exist beyond these moments we're seeing. We see Carol kind of holding her own in some of the cruising minutiae. So when somebody tosses a water balloon at them, Carol has the idea, hey, let's deflate their tires and spray foam all over their windows, which felt a little bit disproportionate. Like now that car is undrivable in the middle of the road when they had just kind of tossed a water balloon into the car. But I still kind of enjoyed that moment. Yeah, serious escalation. They don't start things, (laughs) but they finish them. Right. And she's good at trading barbs, like with Harrison Ford's character, although there's a moment where she says something like, your car is as ugly as I am. Oh, wait, that didn't come out right, which I thought was funny. It takes kind of a dark-ish, weird-ish turn towards the end of the night, which I was not particularly fond of, where Milner is still trying to get rid of Carol, and he like figures out basically what street she lives on, and is going to try to scare her into giving him her address so that he can drive her home and he acts like he's got all this pent up lust for her and is trying to hook up with her it came off kind of predatory and not in line with the character that i would be rooting for i wish it had been a slightly more genial conclusion but their their last kind of exchange when he drops her off does de-escalate that a little bit and throughout the night she had been kind of fiddling with his stick shift cap and he pulls it off and tosses it to her as like a memento for the fun evening So all these characters have kind of reached pretty close to dawn and their stories are about to generally come together here because the climax is finally Harrison Ford's character who's been chasing after Milner all evening. It's like, hey, let's go race. And this is kind of the epic conclusion and climax of the film. So they go to this strip called Paradise Road. I really do not think that it's a coincidence that this race is a light car versus a dark car at daybreak on a street called Paradise Road that kind of leads off into a sunrise distance. There's a whole lot of life and death afterlife imagery here. It's like got a hazy twilight almost feel to it. It's like a symbolic death of the era that we are kind of witnessing here. I I thought this was really evocatively set up and filmed. And as Dan said, George Lucas had a formative car crash of his own. So he really seems to be drawing on his experiences here. Right, because as the race kicks off, one thing I'm not sure that I mentioned, in the wake of their apparent breakup, Laurie hops in the car with Harrison Ford. So uh, Laurie, who was had been Ron Howard's girlfriend, is now kind of riding around with the Harrison Ford character. 
and the car gets into a wreck almost as soon as the race starts. And this is that other big stunt piece that you mentioned. We see this car just viciously swerve off the road and flip over like three times and catch on fire. Fortunately, the Harrison Ford and Lori are able to like hop out of the car just in time for it to explode. Yeah, somehow. Like, like maybe they have a scratch and this car has flipped three times and is almost a fireball. Right, it was like basically miraculous. And then there's this moment, this couple of shots where they show all of the characters just kind of looking mouth agape at this flipped car in fire burning. And it, it just, it really struck me as like an emblem of an ending era burning in hellfire or perhaps absolution, I don't know. But just like a very, a very evocative symbol here. Steve, the Ron Howard character, of course panics when he sees Laura's car flip over and he momentarily has the pain of what life would be like if Laurie was gone from him. And that inspires him to stay home and he'll go to JC's. So we have this flip of the opening dynamic where the Richard Dreyfus character was unsure if he was going to go because now it's the Ron ha- Howard character who is unsure if he's going to go. And in fact, he decides to, to stay home. Terry the Toad is also there. I think he's the guy who does the flag on your marks, get set, go, which I thought was funny because in Greece, which is the only other drag racing scene I really know, it's like a really beautiful, scantily clad woman who flags the start of the race. And here it's Terry the Toad. (laughs) So the last piece here, Kurt Richard Dreyfus, he does manage to get a phone call from the lady in white, the lady with the T-bird, who promises to meet him the next night. But as he's on this phone call, we hear Wolfman Jack saying, Good night, sweetheart. And it's kind of this this moment where Kurt realizes that he can't just bum around. He's gotta he's gotta go off and pursue his better life. And he even though this woman might feel within his grasp us viewers have the suspicion, perhaps, that she'll always re- remain out of reach, which Kurt realizes and decides that he is going to board the plane tomorrow morning to uh, to go. And that's how this movie ends. All the characters reuniting as Kurt hops on a plane to fly to college. Yeah, he kind of decides that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. It's like, here's a concrete opportunity versus you know, any number of ambiguous possibilities if I stay here. Right. So I said that's the end of the movie, but it's not actually, because the very last shot of this movie is we see the plane flying away, and then we get a where are they now type text crawl, intertitle, I suppose, and we learn the fates of each of the four protagonists, and it is really dark. Milner would die in a car crash with a drunk driver just two years later in 1964 terry would go missing presumed dead in vietnam in 1965 steve and kurt managed to survive it but steve becomes an insurance agent which to me is just a kind of very uninspiring career like final landing place for the main protagonist or one of the main protagonists of this film and kurt alone becomes a writer in canada so also pretty boring (laughs) how did you feel about this 
it's like much less fun Animal House. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I read that Lucas was like dissuaded from adding this, but he thought it was important. In some ways, this this film is the result of creative force, uh, a director having the power of Final Cut, for instance. It's like really getting their say and getting their vision on the screen. But this final beat kind of gives an inkling that maybe that's not always the perfect approach. I liked when this movie had an undercurrent and really used kind of visual cues to give us a sense that things were darker than they appeared and innocence might be coming to an end. This is just like a gut punch. Like, I I don't know if I already said this phrase, but like a splash of cold water on the face from like a somewhat warm ending. And for me, it was a bridge too far on the everything's about to change thematic front. It's very abrupt, and it doesn't mention any of the female characters, despite a number of them being pretty prominently featured and being given, you know, pretty decent character development. Yeah, one thing I read is he thought about doing that. This is just something I saw on Wikipedia. He thought about doing it, but he didn't like the fact that it wouldn't all fit on one screen, and he didn't want to do, like, another wipe and adding more text which is kind of a silly semantical thing yeah can't feature the women characters because we'd need another title card it's just (laughs) not in the budget doesn't work but that wraps american graffiti 1973 i wanted to capture we talked a lot about some of the specific details Mm -hmm. i had a few other ones i wanted to note here just like a way that this captures its specific time one is i really liked Just the way that these characters talk and their turns of phrase, it seems a little like corny to modern ears, but it's just very charming hearing it being used in earnest. Here are just a couple of quips that I pulled out. My name's Mud if anybody sees you, or basically sees me with you, was the gist of it. Milner was saying that. One character says, well, go ahead and slug me, why don't you? And uh, Carol at one point complains to Milner, don't you think the Beach Boys are boss? And says, don't be a weenie. At one point, a guy is hitting on a, a young woman, and he says, how's my soft baby? Which is one possible pickup line that one could use, I suppose. It's, it's arguably better than I hate sand, <laughs> which was another pickup line uh, Lucas would go on to write. That's, that's a good point, yeah. I guess it beats that out. And who can forget... Go kiss a duck marble head, which is what Ron Howard says to one of the teachers at the sock hop. But he gets out of a confrontation with the teacher by saying, hey, I don't go to school here anymore. But like, I feel like the teacher could still get mad at you. <laughs> Even if you're no longer, you know, he, he may not be able to flunk you anymore, but it seems like he could like throw you out of the school. Yeah, I don't know. I also found it charming when they would reference specific celebrities and just cultural things going on. There's lots of like actresses and musicians and stuff that are mentioned. Sandra D comes up. I think Terry ends up picking up Debbie by saying she looks like, I forget which actress it was, but he, he compares her to some actress, which I guess was enough of a compliment that he was able to get her attention and get her to hop in the car. It's like, I can't imagine myself shouting to some woman, hey, you look like, 
Gal Gadot. And having that be anything other than get this creep away from me. But uh, times are different, I suppose. <clears throat> Did you have any other specific details that you found engaging or charming? Well, they just put a lot of effort successfully into recreating the period, which again was not that far before the movie was made. It just captures a, a spirit of a night of possibilities in this little slice of Americana. One thing I wanted to shout out was that uh, this movie was set in Modesto, California, which was George Lucas's hometown where he went to high school. But it was actually filmed in Petaluma, California, which is where my mom's family was living at the time the movie was shot, and it was when she was going to high school in the, in the early 70s. So. Oh, wow. I guess this movie didn't make much use of like real footage of the area, so it's not like your relative would have appeared in the, the background or anything. Well, yeah, I, I don't think there's any... Um extra appearances but you know it was just driving around the petaluma downtown so i think she did recognize places gotcha yeah so i'm ready to talk about some good things and not so good things about american graffiti 1973 yeah what did you like well i've actually hit most of them i mean i already talked about how really all-time great the use of music as a tool and the radio and the, the the way that it's just an ever-present piece of the sound, but not really in a droning way, more in like a, a texture to the setting. And uh, I loved it. I thought that was great. I agree that really just the very specific sense of, of place and setting and being in this universe was really outstanding. And I, I, I really liked the story itself. I thought it did. I thought it was pretty well balanced across the characters and, I do think the second half is significantly less fun than the first half. Like the first half is when you have Carol getting the foam on the car and you have the sock hop. You have Terry getting lucky for the first time. The second half is a little bit less fun, but it makes up for it with good dramatic heft. Like just really well made, really well done filmmaking. And there's good symbolism without being too heavily on the nose about it. Maybe, maybe a little bit on the nose about it. But just really engaging story, basically from start to finish. It, it got me wondering a little bit, what makes these slice of life, one night, coming of age, hanging out movies good as opposed to not good? And I think this nails a lot of them. I, think, I don't think I've ever had one of those types of movies that I loved that didn't have just awesome music, just a great soundtrack. I think that's one key, which this one definitely has. I also think it's really important you capture like specific scenes and subcultures like you have the the pharaohs and the greasers here and you have the chipper sock hop and you have the gearheads and the cruising and the the canal. I don't know. I, I just think it, it depicts all those really well and it makes it for a movie where you really have a sense you want to hop in and you would kind of know the layout a little bit. Right. Whether or not you enjoy it is going to come down to if you like the setting and if you feel like you'd want to be there. And so I think in that regard, the setting here helped this movie for me. I liked seeing this era. It was all 
like nostalgic for a time that I never experienced. I, I think it's interesting how big um, 50s nostalgia got in like the 70s and 80s in a way that, you know, we, we hear about only 90s kids remember a lot, but I feel like it's not to the same degree. Like uh, by the 70s, there were 50s diners that you could go to, uh, but, you know, there's not 80s diners now. It is kind of interesting how that kind of last precipice of pre-Vietnam, pre-JFK, pre-civil rights, suburban white America is, is heavily romanticized, both here and just in culture in general. Also, I think something that's going to help one of these films where it all takes place in a very short span of time and there's a heavy focus on characters hanging out is... Just give me some setup and payoff narratively. Like, suggest that things are going to happen and then give me the satisfaction of that developing and coming to fruition. And we got that here. It's like everybody's got an arc, generally. I guess Terry doesn't have much of an arc, but it, he was making me laugh, so I enjoyed that. And uh, everybody else, like, you get the flip-flop of the one who thinks he's going to go to college and then doesn't and for the other character it's the it's the vice versa of that i usually don't like that as a plot point where there's basically two characters in parallel situations and you think one of them is headed for one thing but it's really the opposite that gets headed for that thing i, I feel like it too often comes off as kind of contrived like if you ever have a cancer story where two of the people have cancer, the first one who seems like they're really sick is going to be the one to survive, and the person who doesn't seem really sick is going to be the one to die. Oh, yeah. So I, I just ruined about 25 movies and books for you. I apologize. Yeah, Fault in Our Stars, Bucket List, it's all that way. And you're right. I think, like, the fate of Steve seems a little phoned in. You know, just because he doesn't go to college this year doesn't mean he never will. He seems like a driven person. Don't, just don't write him off. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, to some extent, the people who are kind of lean into things that are traditional values, like it's, you know, settling down. I mean, he's obviously, like, staying with a girlfriend isn't exactly settling down, but it's kind of a stand-in for settling down with the woman you love to prepare to start a family. And then the one guy who goes off leaves, you know, behind the, the greasers and stuff and the flighty woman of the night to go get serious about his career. They're the two people who survive that final title card. Um, whereas the two more loser type characters, the bad boy who drives around drag racing and the kind of goofy guy who can't get anything right and doesn't really seem to know what he's doing with his life. They're the two that end up dying. I feel like there's an undercurrent here of like conservative values that the movie kind of uh, holds on to despite its theme of the end of an era of innocence sort of i don't know the moral is if you want to amount to something get out of your small town i i think yeah or settle down in your small town but don't be a loser in your small town i, I don't really know it's not exactly clear yeah the cap that we get kind of doesn't quite fit the the rest it, it's it's an anticlimax and weirdly dark in that very final moment. But I think there's enough good in what we get uh, that, you know, it doesn't leave too sour of a taste. 
Right. I agree. And and I actually like that the movie's not oversweet in general. I do think the final title card is too much, but I, I like it when these movies have like a darkness to them. Like in Dazed and Confused, it does not shy away from the hazing, for example, or the fact that there's like a creepy older guy hanging around and they're they're also kind of having some personal struggles like when there's a little bit of an edge to it that i think makes these movies a little bit more memorable sometimes that kind of wraps up my thoughts on the good things about american graffiti did you have any more you wanted to add or should we move to the not so good things like let's keep uh cruising on down the road (laughs) uh for me one not so good thing was There is a little bit of like problematic, maybe just product of the time stuff. So there's that bit where Milner kind of acts really sexually aggressive to Carol. And there's like a a handful of casual rape jokes that would not fly in 2021. On the other hand, I tend to be forgiving of problematic stuff in period pieces when the purpose of that movie is to like really capture the feel of that specific time, including its language and behavior, because... I mean, it's not like necessarily celebrating it, but it's kind of depicting it as it was to some extent without judgment, which some might say is an endorsement, but I don't know. It it tends to not not bother me as much in these types of movies. But other than that and my already registered complaints about the final title card, my only complaint is something else I've already said, which is I'm a little disappointed that we never got to see George Lucas make other movies like this because I would have wanted to see him make something else, maybe not quite as nostalgic, but kind of a more contemporary and low-key drama, but with flashes of the the operatic and the thrilling in it. I don't know. Yeah, it's so different from the other things we got from Lucas. He doesn't have a huge corpus of things that he actually directed. Right. It's kind of an unusual thing about his career. He's only directed this, Star Wars. His very first movie was, I have never seen it, but THX... 1138, which is the license plate on Harrison Ford's car in this movie. I don't know if you noticed that. I didn't, but yeah, it's also what inspired the naming of the the digital sound. I don't know if it's a finishing studio or, or whatever, but you know, the THX at the start of movies that goes Oh yeah. Because of course, one of Lucas's big legacies is that he established a bunch of companies dedicated to post-production and special effects so there's skywalker sound that you know does the sound work for a bunch of different movie studios and he established industrial light and magic which made all kinds of special effects advancements and pixar started as a branch of lucasfilm i was gonna say didn't he have a, a play in the start of pixar yeah that's right it was like the computer graphics branch of Lucas film. Wow. Spun off as Pixar. Did you have any other not so good things you wanted to bring up? Not really. I, I already expressed my trepidation going in about this story structure is not usually my favorite. Although we're going to throw a rating on this pretty soon. And I'd say this might be my favorite movie I've seen with this structure. Before we get to our our own personal climax on Paradise Road, where we say, is it good or is it not good? I just wanted to tell you a little bit about the sequel and listeners as well, because I watched the sequel. Yeah, I I wanted to talk about the legacy of this movie as well. Although I think I'll save my own personal climax for when we're not recording anymore. (laughs) 
So the sequel, again, I already talked about a little called More American Graffiti. It managed to bring back the entire cast except Richard Dreyfus. Everyone else is back in there, although Harrison Ford only has a very small cameo. Lucas didn't direct it, so you would think he wasn't involved. It was kind of like a corporate thing, but he actually was really involved with it. He spearheaded the production. He handpicked the director and the writer. He doesn't have a writing credit on it, but I think he had some voice in shaping what the story looks like. So what the story is, is it is again one crazy day, except it's New Year's Eve and it's across four different years. So we again have four story threads, but it's four different New Year's Eves. 1964, 1965, 1966, and 1967. And the really insane thing is that each one of these four threads are shot in different film styles with different film stocks, different resolutions, but like intercutting between them. So you have like a kind of widescreen look that cuts to 16 millimeter handheld just from scene to scene. And it is, I've never seen anything like it. It is really bizarre. Um, The four threads are... In the 1964 one follows Milner, who is now a semi-pro drag racer, trying to get picked up for a a real major team. And he kind of has this romantic comedy with this Icelandic woman who doesn't speak English. And this movie is kind of like a vintage, single-set, exploitation, action-type movie with lots of set pieces. But it really honors the original's love of cars. The 1965 one might have been my favorite, so the second one. And this follows Terry the Toad, and he's a soldier in Vietnam. And his it's shot in like a newsreel-style handheld 16-millimeter footage. And it is just so bizarre seeing what is like Vietnam newsreel footage, but with the Terry the Toad character. And like tonally, it's a goofy college comedy, basically. Like he's got a couple of buddies. One of them is one of the pharaohs. And they're like goofing off on the base, but then it like abruptly goes to combat without really like preparing us for a change in tone and then goes back. And do you mind if I spoil the ending on this? Go ahead. So uh, full disclosure, I didn't have a chance to watch this one, but I think I will track it down. But go ahead and tell the story. So we know from the title card that he disappeared or, or was lost in action or whatever, but he ends up faking his own death. And like doing this elaborate prank on one of the officers and then just running off with a backpack. And it was just really weird. So it manages to honor the letter, but not the spirit of the original. And the 1966 thread follows Debbie. So she's the one that Terry the Toad picked up. And in 1966, she's a hippie who's crashing with some musicians and trying to get her boyfriend a gig. But she gets swept into the hijinks of, the, of this other band. What makes this one really weird is inspired by the Woodstock documentary. They shot this entirely in split screen. It's like so weird. You constantly have anywhere from two to like 16 frames on screen showing different things. And it feels like this avant-garde experimental thing. And it really threw me for a loop. And the last one that might have been the weirdest story was Stephen Laurie in 1967. So they have twins and it's kind of this domestic feminist drama where Laurie wants to get a job, but Steve, who's Ron Howard and has this terrible mustache, doesn't want to let Laurie get a job. 
And in the midst of their arguing, they managed to get pulled into like this Vietnam protest rally at a university. And like it ends with pretty graphic police brutality. But the tone is like still very comedic and all over the place. I words just cannot describe how bizarre the tonal whiplash is in this movie. And the icing on the cake for me is because it's New Year's Eve, it does end with a cross cut of the four different timelines singing Auld Lang Syne, which as discussed previously on this podcast, I'm a big Auld Lang Syne enthusiast, it, but it also does have an abruptly dark ending. That one I won't spoil for you, Brian. I'll leave that for you. But there is a, a yet another abruptly dark ending on this movie. So yeah, man, it's, it is a trip. I just, my jaw was hanging the whole time. Like, it's one you know how sometimes you hear stories about like movie ideas that they had this crazy audacious idea that they were going to make it but then they re- then it kind of got stuck in development hell and never got made and you always are like what if man if they had made that that would be wild to see this seems like a movie that should have never gotten past that stage i can't believe it actually got made and it's not good i would say but it it's like way too long it's 2 hours it did not need to be that long so I'm not sure I actually recommend it as a good movie, but I had a blast watching it because I was just in utter astonishment at, at what was on screen. So, yeah, Brian, you should give it a watch and let me know what you think. That's wild. I'm definitely curious to check it out. Now, I know you got to go here pretty soon, but I wanted to give some of my thoughts on the American Graffiti legacy as well. Sure. So I, I haven't seen the sequel but back in the day, I did watch quite a bit of reruns of Happy Days, which I think it's at least somewhat fair to say that Happy Days is kind of a continuation, kind of inspired by American Graffiti. Early on in our podcast, we covered a movie called The American President, directed by... It was written by Sorkin and I think directed by Rob Reiner, maybe. Well, early on in our podcast, we covered a movie called The American President, written by Aaron Sorkin, and talked about how that was kind of uh, like a backdoor pilot and a springboard for the show The West Wing, and how that carries on, you know, a similar creative team with some of the same actors, and it it's continuing the same kind of tone and the same kinds of stories. So Happy Days is sort of the West Wing of American Graffiti's The American President, if that makes any sense. You may need to see it written out, but... (laughs) I tracked, yeah. Happy Days also features Ron Howard in a nostalgic 50s setting. So, you know, a slightly earlier setting than the movie and a slightly more family-friendly comedic tone, but it has a similar feeling, a similar vibe. Uh, You have a character who's the cool guy who's always driving around in in cool cars and motorcycles. Uh, So Milner kind of becomes Fonzie, and the friend Kurt kind of gets broken into the Ralph and Potsy characters. Sadly, there's no Terry the Toad character in Happy Days, and he's sorely missed now that I've seen this movie. (laughs) I think Ralph maybe has just a hair of Terry in him. I always remembered Ralph as a little bit of a loser. Yeah, a little bit. But he doesn't get the same misadventures. Right. 
I can't say 100% that Happy Days was inspired by American Graffiti, but I did some research. Apparently, the Happy Days pilot was shot in 1972 with Ron Howard in the lead role, and that that kind of inspired his casting in American Graffiti. But then the success of American Graffiti led to the Happy Days pilot being taken to series. So they kind of traded off, kind of each led to the other in turn. If I'm not mistaken, this movie, American Graffiti, its opening scene at the the drive-in, or sorry, at the diner, I guess. I I think I've been calling the the diner some variation of the drive-in, the drive-through, and the diner. But I think I made the mistake too. Uh, Of course, there's Guy Fieri's masterpiece, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives that conflates the two. At these diners, you do drive your car there, and then the car hops come out and give your food at the car. So there is some synergy, at least. But the diner scene here at the beginning plays Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets. And I think that was the theme song for the first season of Happy Days. You're very right. Yes. Only diehard Happy Days fans know that the quintessential happy days theme song didn't debut until later seasons originally they just used rock around the clock so happy days debuted in january 1974 and american graffiti came out in august 1973 so they were close and i bring this up i mean it's a pretty clear connection one to the other but mostly because i wanted to talk about a spin-off of Happy Days called Laverne and Shirley that debuted in 1976. It actually stars Cindy Williams, who played Lori in American Graffiti. In that show, she's Shirley. I don't know if you could call this a coming-of-age experience, but when I was in sixth grade again, this was the first year that I started using an alarm clock to like get up early to get ready for school. You know, I, that I would be waking myself up and getting ready for the day. And I would get up with enough time to spare before leaving for school that I could watch a half-hour episode of TV. And what was on TV at, like, 6.30 in the morning happened to be Laverne and Shirley reruns. <laughs> and so every day I would get up to my alarm clock, you know, get dressed... And feel very mature watching Laverne and Shirley. That's pretty funny. And the Laverne and Shirley theme song is a great way to start the day and just really inspires you to seize the day. So if you'll humor me, I wanted to give an excerpt from the Laverne and Shirley theme song. Go for it. Give us any chance, we'll take it. Read us any rule, we'll break it. We're gonna make our dreams come true, doing it our way. Nothing's gonna turn us back now, straight ahead and on the track now. We're gonna make our dreams come true, doing it our way. There's nothing we won't try. Never heard the word impossible this time. There's no stopping us. We're gonna make it. And that's about half of it. (laughs) But uh, it continues on with that inspirational tone. And uh, yeah, it's a great way to start your day. No, that's great. And I I do think we need 
to have some singing in every episode of the goods that's the goal for me for the future especially so. when the covered movie features music so prominently that's a good point yeah now are we ready to throw a rating on this thing yeah let's do it so brian is american graffiti 1973 good where would you put it on our eight point is it good scale ranging from our one out of eight very not good to our eight out of eight masterpiece rating toward day good so this one was a roller coaster for me i was very afraid going in that i might be throwing a a low rating on a dan pick tonight but that is not the case i ended up really enjoying myself and by the end of the movie i felt the need to watch it again i haven't yet but i think i will And in the course of time, I might boost this up even higher than I'm about to right now. I'm going to give American Graffiti from 1973 a 6 out of 8. Very good, with the note that it's a high 6 for me. Possibility that if I watch it again, it might get a 7, which I think we've termed an exceptionally good. As it went along, I really was won over. I was pleased with the development that we get. It didn't feel like I was just going through the motions. It felt like more than just hanging out to me. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad you liked it. So I'd like to hear how you rated it, Dan. I liked it quite a bit, too. And I, I loved its best ever, pretty much, best ever use of music in the soundtrack. Just really blew me away and, and kept me enraptured the whole time. Um, I like the characters. I, I love the period details. The movie looks pretty good. I love seeing the neon lights and all the cool cars. The, the cast is good. The story works. It, it really feels engaging from start to finish. And our thunk, it, it has an appropriately climactic and dramatic end of an era feeling towards the end of it that makes it a good payoff, too. I was teetering on like a really high seven or a low eight on this one. I, I just absolutely loved it. Then we get that <coughs> splash of cold water in the face that is the just brutal title card of... Two of the main characters die within a couple years. Bye, have a nice day. And that was enough of a sour last thought that my flirtations with our masterpiece rating ended. And I'm giving this a 7 out of 8, an exceptionally good, but a pretty high one, I would say. This has been one of my favorite movies that we've watched on this podcast. I really enjoyed it and really loved it, and I will definitely be watching it again. I think I will as well. It showed another side to Lucas that I hadn't seen before. And I ended up getting more out of it than I expected halfway through. So with that in mind, Brian, what will we be watching next week? All right. So listeners, it is almost the beginning of summer, not the end of summer. One thing that I associate this season with, I think it's pretty common that people take road trips during the summer. So I have got a road trip movie, but... Something I associate spring and early summer with is yard sale season. So this movie that I'm selecting, I have fond memories of because it has the most iconic yard sale scene I know of. There's also an interesting story of how I was reunited with this film after not knowing what it was for a long time that I'll share with you next week. Um, Basically, I saw it on TV at one point and never forgot it, but then struggled to track down what the title is. And the title is Tourist Trap. I think it was made in 1997. 
and it's a TV movie starring Paul Giamatti and Daniel Stern. Oh, I love Daniel Stern. Cool. I will look forward to watching it and regrouping with you to discuss it. Dust off your VCR because I don't think it ever got a DVD release. I, I had to track it down. I'll either find it online or I'll I'll sync up with you and, and you can get me a copy. But I I love me an obscure old pick. So thank you for, for giving me something I haven't seen before. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it. Yeah, same to you. This was fun. And the world is reopening. Nature is healing, as they say. If you're feeling adventurous, now is the time you could take your mask off. <laughs> Perhaps. I, yeah, I'm envisioning Nicolas Cage doing the face-off gesture when I say that, so I don't know if that comes across on the radio. I caught it. No, I got, I got it. So. But as always, listeners, thank you for joining us on The Goods Film Podcast. And Brian, thank you for, for joining me and watching my selection. And I will talk to you all next week. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Hope you join us again. Thank you.